Brands. We wear brands to identify with and declare our allegiance to what the brand represents and to associate ourselves with others who use that brand. For example, we wear shirts and hats with the names of our favorite athletes or sports teams on them. We put our own brand on things. For example, we write our name on things to signify our ownership of that thing. We all have a brand on us. I'm not talking about a product brand or a sports team logo or something like that. I'm talking about a brand that was stamped on every one of us before we were even born. We have been created in the image of God. He put his brand on us. Being created in the image of God means much more than simply having his brand on us, but this idea of brands, <clears throat> I think, helps us understand some of what it means to be created in the image of God. Having God's brand on us signifies his ownership. Having God's brand on us implies who we are to align ourselves with. Having God's brand on us implies a certain set of characteristics that we are to have. Identity. What is your identity? Who are you? How do you understand who you are? How do you want others to understand who you are? Who do you want to become? Identity is a big issue in our day, isn't it? I mean, it has become commonplace to hear a person say, I identify as, and then you fill in the blank with whatever. What do you identify as? I'm not discounting other ways that we may identify ourselves, but for the follower of Jesus Christ, the most important aspect of our identity is our connection with Jesus Christ as our Savior, as our Lord, as the one we follow, as the one we seek to model ourselves after, as the one who defines who we are. Our identity is in Jesus Christ if we are a follower of His. And we're going to talk about brands and identities today in uh, the story that we take a look at. The events in our study of the Gospel of Matthew, and you, if you have your Bible, you can make your way over to the Gospel of Matthew. We're picking up where we left off last time in chapter 22. But in the events in our study today, they take place in the city of Jerusalem during the final week of Jesus' life, which is often referred to as the Passion Week. And as we've noted before, the tension between the religious leaders and Jesus is steadily increasing. The things that Jesus does and the things that he says, they're exposing the hypocrisy of these people and it threatens their positions of power and prestige. They want to get rid of Jesus. So they're looking for ways to discredit him and turn the common people against him or get the Roman government to see that Jesus is a threat to them and have him removed. We'll flip over Matthew 22, beginning in verse 15. What better way to get the government to come after you than to lead the people in a revolt against paying taxes? Well, that is what the religious leaders are trying to trick Jesus into doing. Verse 15, it says here, Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him, Jesus, along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, 
We know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? The Pharisees and the Herodians, they didn't like each other. But they unite together here against their common enemy, Jesus. The Pharisees were a very active and influential group within the Jewish religion around the time of Jesus. They were strict adherents to the teachings and traditions of the fathers of the Jewish religion. They were extremely legalistic, so much so that the term Pharisee has become synonymous with legalism. When someone says, you're acting like a Pharisee, everyone's like, oh, yeah, he's a legalist. The Herodians, they were primarily a political group who supported the family of Herod as the rightful rulers of Israel. The Pharisees and the Herodians were at odds with one another politically and religiously, but when it came to their desire to get rid of Jesus, they're able to put those differences aside and find unity in their differences, in their diversity, as we say. Well, these groups, they have pulled together their best minds to craft a question designed to trap Jesus into saying something that will either destroy his credibility with the common people or put him at odds with the Roman government who is ruling over Israel at this time. They preface their question here with this obvious insincere flattery. I mean, it's hard for us to even read this stuff without losing our breakfast, isn't it? Knowing their evil motives and how much they despise Jesus. They go, oh, you are just incredible. Da, 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 da. And what they say about Jesus, it's all true. It's just that it's being spoken from a very untrue heart. He wasn't swayed by people's opinions. He didn't show favoritism to people or position or power. He taught the way of God in truth and didn't modify it to please people. He was a person of impeccable integrity. Their question is this, is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Now, some of you may have perked up when you heard that question. Should we pay taxes? And you're hoping Jesus will say, no, you don't have to pay taxes. Tell the government to go pound sand. It's your money. You don't owe them anything. Jesus is going to do something profoundly different with how he answers this question, though. With the way he answers this question, he will raise this issue above the secular concerns of money and obligations to government and teach us something about who we are at the deepest level of our being and who we are truly obligated to. Before we get into that, let's, take, let's talk just a moment, though, about the significance of this question asked Jesus and why it's potentially damaging to him. See, the, this question about paying taxes to the Romans, it's a tricky one. If Jesus says, yes, pay taxes to Caesar, it will hurt his image with the common people who resent paying taxes to the Romans. Paying taxes to the Romans was a very bitter pill for the Jewish people to swallow. It was kind of like having to give the school bully your milk money every day. 
The Jews wanted to overthrow the Romans and kick them out of their country rather than give them money to support their occupation and oppression of their country. Now, if Jesus answers, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, it will bring the Romans down on his head because they will see him as someone trying to stir up a rebellion against their authority. And the Romans, they had a no-tolerance policy toward those trying to start up rebellion against them. Either way, Jesus answers, whether he says, pay your taxes or don't pay your taxes, it will serve the purposes of the Jewish religious leaders. They will be equally happy with eroding the popularity of Jesus with the common people or with having the Roman government see him as a dangerous insurrectionist needing to be stopped. They finally have Jesus trapped, or so they think. Verse 18, Jesus said, knowing their evil intent, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Jesus sees through their scheme. He asks them to bring him one of the Roman coins used to pay the tax. He then asks them, well, whose image and inscription is on this coin? And they reply, Caesar's, the Roman governor or uh, emperor. And then he says, then he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, They were amazed, so they left him and went away. The answer that Jesus gives avoids their trap beautifully, doesn't it? And at the same time, it teaches a very powerful truth. So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Caesar's image is on that coin. So give him his coin. God's image is on you. So give yourself to God. So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. Jesus, he didn't teach rebellion against the government. He paid his taxes. He told us to pay our taxes. Some of the other places in the New Testament that talk about the issue of our responsibility to the governing authorities uh, include Romans 13, 1 through 7, 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3, 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. We uh, are not going to read those passages this morning. You can read those on your own. I want to focus our attention today on the second part of what Jesus says here, which is the more important aspect of his teaching here, which is give to God what is God's. The Bible tells us that we have been made in the image of God. His portrait and inscription are on us. Genesis 1.26, it said, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. If, if the thing with the Roman emperor's image on it is given to him, then what should be done with the thing that has God's image on it? It should be given to God. You and I should be giving ourselves to God. We're going to talk more about this in a moment, but but let's look at this next story first that begins in verse 23. 
the Pharisees and the Herodians, they've taken their best shot at trying to trip Jesus up here, but they failed. Now a new group known as the Sadducees are going to see if they can do any better. So in verse 23 it says, That same day the Sadducees, who say there's no resurrection, came to him with a question. The Sadducees, they were a group of priests and lay leaders from the elite, privileged, and very wealthy of Jewish society of the time. They held the political power in Jerusalem, and they were generally not liked by the common people. They were theologically liberal for their day, meaning that they didn't respect the traditions of the elders like the Pharisees did. They considered the five books of Moses to be the only true scriptures, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The rest of the Old Testament, eh, they weren't too impressed with that. They didn't believe in the afterlife which meant that they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead, as noted here by Matthew. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the direct and personal involvement of God in the affairs of human beings, which meant they did not believe in divine intervention or miracles. Because the Sadducees didn't believe in life after death or the resurrection of the dead, the question that they manufacture here is designed to point out how stupid they think the idea of a literal resurrection is. So in verse 24, they come to him with this question. They go, teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for her. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and third brother, right on down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Ooh, that's a tricky question. So the Sadducees, they, they come up with this ridiculous hypothetical case by extrapolating from a provision in the Law of Moses and combining that together with the belief in the resurrection of the dead and eternal life. Uh, I put together a little diagram that kind of illustrates this, this amazing thing. This, this far-fetched situation that they have dreamt up is on the same level as questions like, can God make a rock that he can't lift? Ooh. Or how many angels can fit on the head of a pin? It's like, ooh, see the, those are important questions to be wrestling with. The provision in the Mosaic law that they're making reference to is found in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 and 6 which was intended to ensure the well-being and care of a widow and to preserve the family line of the deceased man who has passed. In our own day, this provision, it sounds strange, though, doesn't it? Marrying your deceased brother's wife and have a child with her on his behalf. I mean, we don't do stuff like that. You'd probably get arrested for doing something like that in our day. But we need to remember that the cultural and the historical context within which this law was given and applied, this 
made sense in that context at that time. Well, verse 29, Jesus replies, You're in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So Jesus tells them that they don't know the Scriptures or the power of God. The resurrection will bring with it a new kind of existence for us. The Sadducees, they have mistakenly assumed that life will always be as we know it today in this present realm of existence. They didn't imagine that God had a different realm of existence for us after this life. The Sadducees had a very narrow, wooden understanding of the power of God and what is possible. They lacked a lot of imagination. The Sadducees' views about the afterlife remind me of those who imagine heaven to be a bunch of people sitting in the clouds up in the sky, playing harps all day with silly smiles on their faces. That's not what the scriptures teach that heaven will be like. The scripture teaches that no human being has imagined what heaven is really like. It will be beyond our imagination. The, the level of existence will be so much more and so different than what we know now that human speech and thought lack the capacity to express or describe it. 1 Corinthians 2.9, Paul wrote, What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived. These are the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. Marriage will not exist in heaven. Instead, we'll be like the angels, it says. You will all be married to Jesus, in a sense. The church is described as the bride of Christ. The kind of life and existence that we will have will render marriage, as we know it, unnecessary nor desired in every way. The companionship that marriage is intended to provide will not be needed. The kind of relationships that we will have in heaven will be so much deeper and more meaningful that the very best relationships that we have in this life will be as nothing in comparison. The procreation of the human species, which marriage is intended to provide an environment for, will not be needed the biological drive in us to reproduce is powerful. We have celebrated it throughout human history in all kinds of ways. Songs, poems, dances, rituals, movies, TV shows, and so forth. We have exploited that drive to, in all kinds of ways to manipulate and to cheat and to take advantage of one another in all kinds of ways. Sex is such a huge, overwhelming, driving desire in human beings, it's hard for us to imagine that it no longer would be needed or present. But what we will be and have in heaven will so far exceed even the strongest desires that we have now that they will be rendered as nothing in comparison. We will experience satisfaction and fulfillment on a level that we can't really imagine or comprehend now. And this is what Jesus is trying to get across to them. Is that 
It's interesting that Jesus mentions angels because it confronts yet another theological error of the Sadducees. They didn't believe in angels. Jesus obviously did believe in angels. Verse 31, he continues, he says, But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. So Jesus again addresses their ignorance of the scriptures. He directs them back to the story of when God spoke to Moses from the burning bush in the wilderness found in Exodus chapter 3. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had already been dead hundreds of years when God appeared to Moses at the burning bush and he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God did not say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The point that Jesus is making is that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they are all still alive in Moses' time. They are all still alive in the time that the Sadducees asked their question. They're all still alive right now in our time. Nothing that Jesus, notice that Jesus, he makes a point over the tense of one small word, am versus was. And it highlights for us the importance of being careful students of the Word of God, doesn't it? I also want us to notice that Jesus uses a passage of Scripture from one of Moses' books to address the Sadducees. And this is significant. Remember, the books of Moses were the only books of the Bible that the Sadducees considered the true Scriptures. So Jesus fights them on their own turf using a book that they acknowledge as Scripture. I love what Jesus says here in verse 32 when he says, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. There really is eternal life. For the followers of Jesus, even though we die in this life, we will be raised back to a new life with God in heaven where there will be no more pain or suffering or death. This is what Jesus Christ came to provide for us, eternal life. His resurrection from the dead would be the first of many. He has gone before us and opened up a new and living way, it tells us, to know God and to experience life forever with Him. This is the hope that every follower of Jesus has. In John 14, 1, Jesus said this, He says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In closing, I want to take us back to Matthew 22, 21, when Jesus said, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Whose brand is on you? God's. You and I were created in His image. And having God's brand on us, having His image on us, it implies that He has ownership of us. He owns us. We are His. 
Having God's brand on us implies who we are to align ourselves with. We are part of His family, a citizen of His kingdom, if we're a follower of Christ. Having God's brand on us implies a certain set of characteristics that we are to have. People should be able to tell what brand we are by observing our life, right? Do you remember the movie Toy Story? It contains a beautiful illustration for us on these things. Woody, the toy soldier, toy soldier, the toy cowboy, he had a brand on him that he was very proud of and attached a great deal of importance to it. It was on the bottom of his boot. Do you remember? That word Andy scrawled on the bottom of Woody's boot. It meant that Woody was cherished and loved by someone. He was not just a toy cowboy. He was Andy's cowboy. And he was not just any toy cowboy. He had a name, an identity given to him by Andy. He was Woody. We're not just a human being. We're God's child, cherished and loved, and He has given you a name and an identity. In the movie, that brand on the bottom of Woody's boot, that mark of ownership, it, it served as a motivator for Woody to fight through all of the difficulties and the trials that he faced. His heart's longing was to get back to his beloved Andy, and Andy's heart was to get his beloved Woody back. God sent his son Jesus Christ to find and to rescue you and me, his beloved children. You're his, and his heart's longing is to get you back, to be reunited reunited with you to have you with him. Do you remember the outsider, Buzz Lightyear, who joined the group of other toys? And do you remember the profound joy that Buzz experienced when he too received and then understood the special Andy brand on the bottom of his shoe? That was when Buzz knew he was truly loved and accepted by Andy. He was Andy's, and Andy was his. You're the Lord's, and he is yours. His image is on you. You have his brand on you. You have his identity that he has given to you that goes far beyond any other identities that you might have in your life. Let us reflect on those things this week. Who we are. Whose we are. whose image is on us. Let's bow our heads. Lord, we thank you for uh, your word. And Lord, I, I thank you that we are yours. That you've scrawled your name on us, Lord. That we are loved, cherished, I pray that would fill the hearts of your people this morning with joy, encouragement, with strength, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.